0: You know, leftist teachers and administrators are indoctrinating the next generation. That's why the conservative student in your life needs Young America's Foundation. Students ages 13 and older can apply for YAF's individual membership program and connect with like-minded students, learn from leaders of the conservative movement, gain skills and materials to advance their ideas, and much, much more. Apply today at www.yaf.org and receive a free membership pack. Again, that's www.yaf.org. Please check it out. Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Um, after missing a week, I tried to uh, try to connect with you, Charlie, but we just couldn't make it happen last week while I was abroad. But I am back in the United States, no longer in your native land. So
1: um Wow Kyle Rittenhouse. A- adjacent Let's just go to straight to Kyle land. Rittenhouse, shall we? What's that? Adjacent to my native land. Well, I was in England as well. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh hard to fly directly into Scotland from the United States. I don't think there are any direct flights, at least not from not from D F W.
1: No, I think that's right.
0: Yeah. Might be from somewhere on the East Coast. Probably not though. I mean it's all uh Heathrow and whatnot. Um, So I I thought we'd talk a little bit about the the Kyle Rittenhouse thing just because uh, I don't have super strong opinions about the trial, which I haven't followed that closely. But um, something we were talking about a little in a different context earlier is the original misdemeanor weapons charge that was dropped. Um, From what I can tell, that was probably the right decision under the law. But I think it's nuts that they have a law under which a 17 year old kid can carry a gun in public. Um, that seems to me just plain bananas. Now, I'm generally a little more uh, open, I think, to state and local level gun regulation than you are. I was wondering if we agree on this, disagree on this, where you're on this.
1: I think that we should have a uniform and it can be at the state level, it doesn't have to be national, uh, age of majority, Hmm. and that we should try to clump together the rules uh, so that they are in some way consistent. So voting,
0: alcohol consumption, uh, gun ownership, uh, sexual
1: consent, all the stuff at the same age? Well... I think it would make sense to put like with like. Mm. So, for example, one of the reasons that voting is now 18 is that being in the military is 18. Right. Well, So if you look at Florida, for example, voting is 18, being in the military is 18, buying a handgun... Is twenty one, right? Why driving sixteen, drinking is twenty one. I I don't see any logic there. So the 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 short answer to your question about Rittenhouse is I would make it eighteen. <clears throat> if I were rewriting that law, and it's probably going to need to be rewritten because it was thrown out for vagueness and inscrutability, I think rightly. Yeah. Then let's make it eighteen. But before we make it 18, let's set a constant rule rather than this this patchwork. And I'm not not of the view that all unusual or inconsistent or ostensibly irrational rules need to go. Sometimes things just work. But if you look at the way that the laws have been arrived at, around the age of majority. They're not rational. I mean, again, I I know Florida rather than any other state because I've written about this before. Why is the drinking age 21? Because the drinking age is 21 federally, because in the 80s, Congress decided that it would tie a 21 drinking age to road funding. Road funding, yeah. Okay, fine. Why is the gun purchase age 21 because of the parkland shooting and rick scott was running for senate and didn't want to do what the democrats wanted him to do but wanted to do enough so that he could win the senate seat fair enough you know so i just but i, I there is no universe in which i would set my hopefully more uh comprehensible age of majority at under 18 and therefore i would have set this law on wisconsin at least at 18 yeah i think there's a good case to be made for 40
0: and <laughs> uh in really almost all these things
1: um, i mean it's funny isn't it because we have a rule it's not 40 but it's closer than than 18 in the constitution sure for yeah For the senate and for president
0: well you were saying earlier that sort of irritates you you see these stories in various progressive media outlets every uh every few months about uh brain development in, in in men. You wanna you wanna rant on that?
1: Well yeah, I just find it really strange that whenever the question of firearms comes up, then you read these pieces in Vox about how this psychologist or that psychiatrist or this doctor or developmental expert says that men's brains don't mature fully until they're 25 and therefore they shouldn't be able to own firearms but also we should reduce the voting age to 16 right pick yeah. one i i'm open to the idea for what it's worth now i don't think it's practical given the way our society is set up and also that we need young men to be how 18-year-old young men are because we want them to join the military. I mean, a nation full of 26-year-old men might be less likely to win a war than a nation of 18-year-old men. But I just I just wish that this conversation were used less as a cudgel but because it, it's often the same people who think that we should raise the age at which we can buy firearms but lower the voting age, who will stick to the 21-to-drink rule. You know, I just I just don't see any logic behind it at all. And I don't think it's one of those happy accidents, one of those Chesterton's fences that is there for a reason. I, I think sort of this has developed over time. I mean, it used to be 21. Then it dropped to 18, but we never really caught up. So we're stuck in the middle.
0: I see. Yeah, that all sounds reasonable to me. I'm actually, hmm, I don't mind kind of patchwork settlements. But again, I think you're right there. I mean, they're not all uh, defensible on sort of Okushadian grounds. Um, yeah, 17 seems just, just, just to me at this point, too young know, for anything. Um, there was a time when we had a different sort of society, when we had different sort of expectations and, and realities regarding 17-year-old men. Um, but but we have, have moved, I think, rather decisively in a different direction. And it might be the wrong direction on that, but just because I think it's the wrong direction doesn't mean the move hasn't happened and, and doesn't have to be dealt with. Um, so, yeah, any place that has a, a statute on the books that is is permitting minors to uh carry it all is i think um something that should be visited by the local authorities and local voters and and rethought and addressed
1: if you can't buy a house you shouldn't be able to carry a firearm it fair seems, enough it seems it can, just can you seem, not buy a
0: house if you're 17
1: well you, you can't be the the primary purchaser or at least you can't take out a mortgage
0: Well, let's say you're Justin Bieber at 17 and you've got $100 million. You can't buy a house?
1: I think you probably can. And there are always ways around it. But we, for example, do not let people be the primary um, debtor on a credit card or a mortgage or a loan until they're 18. Now, if we think that's the right age, and I think broadly it is, then I would set the the concealed or open carriage there as well. Yeah, that seems that seems reasonable. How smart were you when you were eighteen? What do you mean? How smart was I, or what was yeah, my how, judgment how, like? <laughs> how, how,
0: yeah, how responsible and, and trustworthy and uh, um,
1: such were you when you were eighteen? I grew up overnight. I mean, I honestly went within about a week from being totally irresponsible and unable to see that I was going to get myself into trouble to being really quite responsible when I was about 18 and a half, maybe 19. Was there some sort of traumatic episode? No, I, I think we've talked about this before. If you remember, I left school a few times. Yeah. And the last time that I left, I worked in McDonald's for a year and I have nothing about to say about that. But everything seemed to happen at once. I decided that I didn't want to work in McDonald's forever. I decided that I wanted to go to university. I I don't know. Maybe it was a physiological change, too. I don't know what it was. But just, I, almost, honestly, within about a week, I just became an adult. Hmm. Interesting.
0: I think the same thing happened to me, but I think it was about 43. <laughs> well, you know what it's like, Ben. And that happened. That was kind of a moron up until that point. Uh, yeah. I. Um, what else can we say about the Carl Rittenhouse situation? I'm, as usual, uncomfortable with the way these things become, you know, so am I. totemic culture war, uh, battlegrounds and such, and it can't be a case. It's just about the law and the evidence. It has to be you know are you a white supremacist or are you uh this or that or the other
1: i think it's clear though that if you look at the charges and then you look at the evidence he's been overcharged and unless i'm missing something it seems obvious that he should be acquitted hmm. obvious is a strong word i can't possibly tally what we know, with five first-degree charges. Yeah. Now, I know that they introduced, two or three days ago, lesser charges, which I hate. Hmm. To me, that's a, that's a, a game. Let's say, yeah. well, we're a bit nervous that we haven't proved the actual case that we brought and argued, so we're going to bring in some attenuated charges too, throw them at the wall and see if we can get the jury to go for that if we failed at our primary job.
0: Yeah, it's like a Plan B thing. Yeah, I don't like that at all. No. Don't imagine. Uh, What else shall we talk about? What else is in the news that we care about? Tell you about having uh, eight COVID tests in seven days. How was that? Or nine, maybe. (laughs) That was no fun. I've had had more stuff up my nose than uh, Robert Downey in the 1980s. But... uh, (laughs) But I'm pumped. So yeah, I went to Glasgow to the um, COP26, as it's known, which is the UN climate change conference to write about all of that business, and uh, went there with the uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, it was a circus. What actually reminded me of a lot of was a um, political nominating uh, committee com- uh, convention. Where if there is any kind of real work going on, it's going on, you know, where you can't see it. And what you really get to see is mostly just sort of a sideshow and a circus and a lot of kind of political performance art. But the uh, UN apparently is super uh, paranoid about uh, COVID. So in order to enter the conference, you had to have a um, negative COVID test and confirmation um, every morning uh, before you could go in. But... The UK government and the US government apparently do not trust the British NHS to get you on an airplane. So at the last minute, I had to schedule yet another COVID test at the airport Um, in order to uh, qualify to get on an airplane. So after seven tests in seven days or whatever it was, uh, just one more there at the end.
1: And did you enjoy that experience, or do you think it's all got extremely silly now? The experience of the convention or being tested? Being tested.
0: (laughs) You know, it's, um, as I, as I mentioned in a, a piece earlier on this, I'm pretty, uh, mild about this stuff. You know, if the grocery store wants me to wear a mask inside, fine, I'll wear a mask inside at your shop, I'll follow your rules, even if I think it's silly and largely symbolic. But, um, you know, eight or nine hours on an overseas flight in a mask is, uh, is a lot. and um, you know some of the more um, invasive things they do in the UK, like you know you have to have an app on your phone and scan a barcode when you go into a pub or a restaurant or something like that, so they can you know trace you. Um, those are those are pretty creepy, not things that I particularly care for. Um, so yeah, it's um, there's a lot of you know kind of ritual and symbolism, and it seems to me at this point to be you know, entirely uh, beside the point when you've got people who are vaccinated and you've got, you know, some pretty good uh, treatments coming onto the market now for people who do develop COVID. Um, It seems to be a pretty controllable thing. Um, As far as we know, most of the cloth masks and whatnot don't really do very much on this front and um, add, add relatively little value. So I'm hoping we can, you know, get past this stuff. I think we should probably continue to keep up a pretty good campaign of social pressure for people to get vaccinated, um, which I think is probably the most important thing. But a lot of these other things just seem to be um,
1: theatrical. I agree entirely. Vaccination works. Save your life. Everything else. Yeah. And what about the event itself? I loved your piece. Oh, thanks. I'm going to write some more on it.
0: Um yeah it was interesting to see how this stuff works and to um you know deal with that particular bureaucracy uh you know the u n is not an institution that I've ever really spent very much time uh dealing with so it's interesting that um you know some of the groups that are there to protest and, um, and that are very critical of the process are essentially you know licensed to do that they are you know accredited members of the uh of the conference. So there's sort of a sense of, you know, approved opposition in the house. And then there's, you know, the sort of rowdier uh and sometimes more exotic street protests outside and in the surrounding areas. So that was uh of some interest, but it was interesting to me and and disappointing really how little the conference had to do with um climate policy. It was almost exclusively about identity politics of various kinds. You know, uh, various kinds of sex and gender politics, indigenous people, um, a lot of, you know, nonsensical stuff about um, neocolonialism and anti capitalism and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, none of which seems to have a lot to do with um, policy. And then some of the people there who do actually have something contribute, like the, you um, know, there's a group of people who are essentially environmentalists for nuclear power who show up at this and they have, uh, you know, they've got their little, uh, booth and they invite people to talk about hey guess what you know as it turns out nuclear power doesn't really produce any greenhouse gas emissions wouldn't it be something if we generated more of our electricity that way you know the way crazy right-wing places like france do and um uh, but they were very lonely no one really wants to have those conversations apparently um people do want to talk a lot about um why indigenous folk ways? are going to actually, you know, solve the climate crisis for us. <laughs> and uh, capitalism must. Uh, seriously, this is was, was, was said uh, repeatedly in in different contexts by different groups.
1: No, I know, I know, I know. Yeah,
0: and uh, so that was um, odd. You know, some of the places you wouldn't expect so much, like a um, Turkish delegation. I was I stopped by there a couple of times, and they were hosting a lot of really very detailed and sort of substantive seeming um, presentations on mostly financial issues um, related to, you know, climate, climate finances, they call it. And uh, those were, were, were fairly interesting. Um, You know, the usual politician showed up. So uh, Pelosi was there. Ocasio-Cortez was there. John Kerry was wandering around being mostly ignored by people looking very kind of surly and bitter, Um, Biden was there, but that was before I got there, of course, and various other, you know, European and Asian head states and ministers and such. So it was interesting to see those. But um, the Americans all gave just really the vaguest possible speeches. Um, You know, you, well, I say this as though a slight, it's not, but you are an articulate, articulate enough person that you could have shown up, gone into Nancy Pelosi's time slot and um, improvised a better speech, and a more interesting one than the um, ones that were
1: given. It may not be true that the entire climate change claim and apparatus is a plot to bring down capitalism, but quite a lot of the people who have signed on to it do see it like that.
0: Yeah, well, it's the old thing. It may not be a plot to bring down capitalism, but if it were, what would you do differently? Right. And (laughs) I can't think of of too much. Although, you know, really the kind of radical anti-capitalists don't seem to have a lot of power or influence um, within the more, um, oh, I guess maybe official, you would say, um, part of the uh, convention. You know, the people who are actually the parties, as they call them, you know, the people who are, I'm um, involved in negotiations doesn't seem to take any of that stuff very seriously at all.
1: No, that's fair. That's fair. W- one thing I don't understand is that if I thought what a lot of... I'm not talking now about the crazies, but what a lot of the green types think, I really would be all in for nuclear. Sure. I, mean, I, I, I understand that it's not cost-free and there are regulatory issues and so on, but but if I believed that really we had x number of years to save the world Uh, and if i were also prepared as uh, casio cortez is to propose absolutely insane programs such as the green new deal in other words Mm -hmm. if i had shown myself not to care about disruption why on earth would would i not land on nuclear power yeah i don't know if this is true anymore I believe there was a period where Britain was importing energy from France because nuclear is so reliable. Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, unlike, you know, solar and wind, it it runs around the clock 365 days a year. You know, this is one of those things where there's a conversation to be had about balancing. You know, I mean, it would be useful to have um, something like nuclear providing a really clean, low carbon baseline load that can be there. when wind and solar aren't performing and when you really need it and, you know, have a balance of different sources. And I think most responsible people kind of get that, but um, they're not willing to take the next step and let that, you know, baseline be nuclear. And I think that's almost entirely aesthetic. You know, nuclear power is sort of nuclear power is seen as right wing. It's uh, you know, a cold war uh, thing. And, um, you know, if you are an environmentalist, It is just something that seems icky to you and you don't really want to consider it. And there's also a touch in thinking, of course, of this, you know, essentially anti-progress, anti-development, anti-consumption. And they don't want a cheap, clean source of plentiful power because they think that would actually be bad for the world. You've got some environmentalists on the record actually saying this sort of thing. But um, I think it's sort of um, a subtext there. More than more than people would like to admit,
1: and this is also where you get those people come in and say, "Well, nuclear power is the patriarchy." And yes, of course, there is always that.
0: Um, You know, uranium is definitely phallocentric. I mean, plutonium. Come on, we all know about the list of Pluto. You know, he was a sexual criminal.
1: I suppose I find it particularly annoying because people who are against nuclear power well they point to chernobyl now the tv series was wildly entertaining really well done but Mm. was not essentially accurate and then they point to three mile island but three mile island was a success right everything worked and they can't find anything in french history to make the case that it's not worth it
0: yeah and of course um there have been improvements in reactor design since the 1960s and 1970s when most of these were designed and engineered and installed. So that's something that has to enter into the conversation as well, I think. Um, I had fun talking to some of the uh, Icelandic uh, delegates, by the way, Um Iceland is a fun example of this because their problems are all solved because they sit on top of a volcano and they've got, you know, essentially endless geothermal power. But the other great thing about being the Icelandic delegation is that nobody in the world speaks Icelandic. So when they want to just, you know, essentially go into code, uh, they can slip into their native language. And it's not like slipping into French or Spanish or something where people might understand you. And you you can kind of watch them doing it. It's always kind of entertaining.
1: Have you been to Iceland?
0: I've never been. I've always wanted to.
1: I've been. Well of it's course a you have. Beautiful country. That's what I hear. Yeah. Saw the northern lights and went to these great whopping fault lines and ate a puffin. So that was You good. beast. hmm <laughs> Poor
0: little defenseless puffin. <laughs> yep. That's,
1: that's it's nice, but everything theory. is astonishingly expensive. My goodness me. Well, if puffins don't grow
0: on trees. No, I mean Pizza Hut at the airport. Someone's got to go out there and club that puffin.
1: Someone did for me.
0: I know, and he got a pretty pretty good you know, Scandinavian wage, I'm sure.
1: I'm sure he did. So nothing's going monster. to come of this
0: cop. No, doesn't look like it. Um, it's all kind of a lot of, you know, theater and um, such, but it's difficult to see anything useful coming out of it. And I think if I were someone who took a very strongly activist view of climate change, I'd take sort of a mildly activist view of it, I would be looking for a different forum for uh, achieving international cooperation on this, whether it's, you know, another uh, multilateral institution or a series of bilateral agreements or or something, because it seems pretty clear that nothing of any real consequence is going to happen through this mechanism.
1: So explain this to me. Why do we need... International cooperation in that. I understand well, the argument in theory. It's well, why would the United States take X action and damage its economy theoretically if, say, Britain isn't going to duh, duh. but isn't the problem here China?
0: Well, no. I mean China's a big emitter, but it's, you know, twenty five percent, something like that. So um, you know, if China went away tomorrow, you'd still have seventy five percent of the problem.
1: And where would that come
0: from? Um well I think the United States is still like the third largest emitter something like that so it's the United States China India to a lesser extent uh Western Europe but the you know future emissions for the next you know 50 60 years are expected to come largely from the developing world as they become wealthier and their standard of living goes up and they consume more energy and agricultural products and meat and such things that have a heavier carbon footprint than Horrifying poverty
1: does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a big problem. Is that we're going to turn to these countries that have been horribly poor and yep. say, stop doing that.
0: Yeah, and again, I think this is where, you know, nuclear might be um, a worthwhile um, strategy. Um, because what we're trying to do, of course, is convince these countries to not build a bunch of coal-fired electricity plants. Um, natural gas, to a lesser extent, um, natural gas still does produce some you know greenhouse gas emissions, but a lot less than coal does. Um, but if what they mainly need is electricity, then your know, nuclear can can solve that problem. that still leaves you with the problem of transportation fuel and some some other things as well. But um, you know the uh, the electricity generating piece of this, which is a big piece of the uh, equation can be dealt with and mitigated, I think, in a pretty effective fashion if we would avail ourselves of the technology we have.
1: I suppose I'm I'm skeptical because I think that the United States is already naturally diminishing its output. Mm-hmm. So is Britain, so is Western Europe. Do we really think China has any interest in doing so whatsoever?
0: Yeah, I think they probably do. Um you know, China is a um, obviously a very complicated country, and I'm, no, I'm not a China expert. I don't think that, you know, that the Xi government is going to be feeling itself morally obliged to keep promises that it feels inconvenient. But um, China, as a matter of nationalism and national self-respect, wants to be, you know, seen as a... Um, Serious and uh, and active country on important issues, and so I think that they would like to um, exert some leadership here. Um, so long as it doesn't cost them anything or cost them anything they care about. So that ends up being, um, you know, kind of a um, a difficult piece of political bookkeeping
1: and they weren't really involved in this cop well they didn't
0: attend they sent a statement and then they kind of you know swooped in at the last minute with a joint statement between them and the united states that was kind of the big headline to come out of the uh uh last part of the uh, conference but the statement was as these things tend to be kind of a plan to have a plan you know we We'll continue to consult one another and we believe in cooperation and we'll have a series of meetings about these particular issues and yada, yada, yada. And I suppose those things are at some level helpful, but um, they're not, you know, some kind of big breakthrough uh, policy achievement.
1: So, Kevin, what do you think it will take in America for things to change, either in a legislative direction that I probably wouldn't like or in the sudden, I say sudden, it takes time to build them, but the adoption of uh, nuclear power plants or what you will.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, over the last uh, 10, 12 years, something like that, a big part of our reduction in, in greenhouse gases came from converting 100-odd uh, coal-fired power plants to natural gas power. And we did that because gas was very, very cheap uh, relative to coal. And so it made sense to uh, to do that. So we had good economic incentives to pursue a policy that resulted in, in lower emissions. Um, if you see a big spike in the price of conventional sources of energy, that'll make nuclear more attractive, I think. Um, there is some conversation there. I mean, there are some open-minded people in the uh, environmental world who, who sort of understand why this would be a benefit, and they can see it as being a useful and uh, reliable part of a package that would help support, um, you know, wind and solar and, and other renewables and make them more of a, um, you know, practical solution to, to power generation. Um, what I think will be much, much more difficult is going to be, um, transportation, not so much personal transportation because electric cars are getting pretty good. And, um, if you've got a relatively clean source of generating electricity, then electric cars are pretty good. Um, fix there but moving, you know, freight, and especially large quantities of freight, like, um, you know, container ships and that sort of thing. These are, um, you know, pretty substantial sources of um, emissions. And while I guess someone did build, I think there was one nuclear-powered American cargo ship at one point. Um, it never really amounted to very much. And it's not a technology that seems to have been Easily adapted to to that sort of thing. So we're still using you know marine fuel, which is basically just crude oil. It gets uh, gets burned, um, which produces, as you might imagine, lots and lots of uh, emissions. So those are going to be pretty difficult problems to um, to solve, I think. And I don't see our demand for
1: transportation
0: of uh, goods diminishing. If anything, it's going to be more as we get more you know home deliveries of things and, and that sort of thing.
1: When I was a kid, I had this book that I got from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And it was about America's exploration of space. And this must have been (laughs) bought in about 1988. So 17 years after the last Apollo mission, I believe. Anyhow, the last page of this book had this very strange-looking spacecraft on it. And it said in the caption that the future would be nuclear-powered spaceships that would travel for years into the farthest depths of space and um we don't even have boats that can do that now right yeah that's true
0: um nuclear don't we have nuclear powered spacecraft though don't we have some things that work that way like some of the um like distant probes don't they work on nuclear
1: power i think they work on solar power i think is it okay
0: um yeah, maybe I remember some conversation about the danger of launching nuclear materials into space on a rocket because if it, you know, malfunctions, you've basically dirty bombed yourself. So maybe that was a discussion in the context of not doing that rather than a discussion in the context of doing it. I could be misremembering.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, say, Voyager is still running because it's powered by, or is it still the sun? I don't know where Amsters. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I believe it
0: would still be the sun. <laughs> well, I don't know how far it's got. Yeah, well, then the nearest Stardust is uh, how many light years away? 71 or something like that. So we're not going to be getting close enough to power something from another. No, I didn't mean
1: that. I meant I wonder if it had got so far that it had essentially died. Run out of power. Yeah.
0: I'm going to look that up because, uh, because I probably got the number wrong. Ah, it's only 4.367 light-years away. Yeah, well, it certainly hasn't got there, is it? Well, no, it hasn't, since it's not travelling at even a tiny little fraction of the speed of light. Well, I guess literally it's travelling at some fraction of the speed of light, as, as I do when I go to the grocery store in my That's car. Right. But, um, That's right. Yeah. Can't be too figurative about your language.
1: But uh, what a easy. monumental achievement it is that lasted yes. so long you know i mean the tolerances that was built to and then you send it out there and you really have no way of fixing it anything goes wrong
0: yeah and no these are um awe inspiring uh technological and engineering yeah, achievements just extraordinary definitely. people pretty pretty nifty stuff and uh so hopefully we can tap on some of that same expertise and innovation to um deal with the climate mm-hmm. stuff that needs to be dealt with oh, but so um, i
1: think it gets fixed
0: I do, too. I don't think it gets fixed by conventioners in, in Glasgow, very much. <laughs> or
1: Although any city, I I, I, let I, I alone Glasgow. To,
0: I want to try to go to the next one, though, because I think it's important for conservatives to be at these things and to you know, have conversations and stuff. And there were some Republican uh, members of Congress there. Uh, so the next one is in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Um, and I might try to organize uh, some kind of panel discussion or some public interviews or something. I think it'd be worth trying to get the right a little more engaged in this conversation rather than just saying it's not a problem it's all a hoax and uh, and even if it's not we're not going to do anything about it i think maybe we have more to say than that don't
1: you yeah although it's not high up on my list of priorities
0: what is high up on your list of priorities what's your number one political priority right now
1: stopping spending
0: is that a short-term or a long-term thing
1: both, but i think Both. Okay. we absolutely can't do it in the long term if we add another set of permanent programs.
0: This is true. And um, the just the extra debt service um, burden that we're going to be having from all the um, unusual spending we've done over the last couple of years is going to make fiscal reform in the long term much more difficult.
1: Yeah, and of course, this is another way in which it's difficult to talk about climate in a political context for me in that there will be a role in some way for the government but sure. i think that asking how are we going to fix this is is in is in one sense like asking what you know who's going to make the shoes i just yeah i don't see the main impetus for this coming from the public sector and because i can't do much about it Personally, it's not high up on my list. Now, you could say, well, you can't stop the spending either. Okay. But I'm much more likely to be able to, small chance, but I'm much more likely Mm. to be able to convince people that we have a problem with spending and entitlements and debt and annual deficits and so on than I am to find technological answers to the climate issue. Yeah. So I will fair
0: enough fair enough i'm kind of with you on that as you know i'm a long-term scold on uh, on fiscal issues which is not one me a lot of friends on either side
1: but no, um, and, and the big problem with this is that i'm not naive and so i don't think that we're going to fix our problems maybe at all but certainly quickly but i think it would be rank insanity to make them worse. So yeah. if we get, you know, three years of Joe Biden as president and presumably absolutely no reforms to the major drivers of our deficits and debt. Okay. If we add a whole bunch of programs on top, pff, you know, to me, that's, that's a crisis.
0: But if it's not, it'll be the crisis gets here yeah so. well that's right yeah no it's going to be a problem what else at the top of your list of political concerns
1: illiberalism mm. from left and right coupled with civic stupidity um, I mean you're not talking to somebody who hates America as you know and so I'm not walking around in the way a lot of people are. And these people exist on the right too, increasingly, in Mm. fact. As if we're living in this terrible place that is rotten to the core and needs to be reimagined. I I don't think that's true. I think we have a long-term problem with our spending. I think we have a potential long-term problem with illiberalism. Some of that's private in terms of cancel culture and reducing people to their racial characteristics some of it is public the way that and this is a left wing problem the way that the left treats the courts increasingly the way that the left talks about justice not as a process but as an outcome that it likes yeah and then the trump wing of the party which you know is is full of a lot of people who are just republicans but is also full of people who think that we need to fix our problems by getting past niceties like voting. Hmm. And I don't. So that's what I'm worried about. But, you know, I don't wake up every morning in terror for America or think that this is a terrible country. It's not. No. It's not.
0: (laughs) Uh, Especially being you from Florida is pretty nice. I imagine most of the time, especially this time of year.
1: It's so bright in my office right now that I can't really see. (laughs) Yes. Uh, will you be traveling for Thanksgiving? Yes, but down further south in Florida. Further south. Um, do
0: you do the uh, sort of turkey stuff and all that? Or are you yeah. a very traditionalist kind of family when it comes to Thanksgiving?
1: It's uh, it's turkey and stuffing and all the accoutrements. Basically what and you would do in England for Christmas. And will you be shooting the turkeys yourself or are
0: you buying them at the store?
1: No, I'm going to shoot a puffin. <sighs>
0: That's rough.